Welcome to the Father's Heart with Tom Clark, better known as Papa Tom. Good morning, this is Papa Tom with the Father's Heart Talk Show. I'm here with a special guest, Dr. Adam Carrington, Associate Professor of Politics from Hillsdale College. And we're going to talk about an interesting subject because on the Father's Heart Talk Show, we're always going to bring up ways in which people can overcome fear in their lives. Our mission statement is to bring the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest they smite the land with a curse. The curse is fatherlessness. And we've been very blessed in our country to have founding fathers that gave us the ability to overcome tyranny and overcome fear. And that history, which is very rich in our Constitution and in other aspects of our history, has been designed to protect the people from tyranny and help them overcome fear. So with that in mind, I'd like to introduce you, the audience, to Dr. Carrington, and he's going to share with us a little bit of background himself and about Hillsdale College. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for for having me on. And yes, um, I am an associate professor at Hillsdale College. We're a small uh, liberal arts school in Michigan, for those who may, may not be familiar with us. And what does that mean that we're a liberal arts school? It means that we are dedicated to cultivating and educating uh, the entire person, not just for a job, uh, not just their minds, but their souls, and not just for work, but to be a, a human being and a citizen. And even more than that, uh, a, a child of God. Um, we were founded by Free Will Baptists in the 19th century. And while we're not affiliated with any particular uh, Christian denomination, we are uh, very much dedicated to uh, to faith and have a very bribe, vibrant uh, set of, uh, uh, of different Christian groups and, and, and many believers on campus and believe, therefore, that part of cultivating the soul, too, is to ask the questions about uh, God and our relationship to God and to bring that all together in a way that I think uh, hopefully builds up not only our own students, but those across the country, which is also why we have a, a pretty extensive number of uh, different educational programs that can be accessed by uh, probably many listeners that are listening now. We've had much of our curriculum has been turned into online content as well, and we just hope we can be part of that broader process of uh, helping people learn more what the good, the true, and the beautiful is. That's very good. You know, I'm a supporter of Hillsdale College. And one of the reasons why I'm a supporter is because I realize that you're one of the few colleges in the country that doesn't receive money from the federal government. Therefore, you're not on the hook to, to uh, say what they want you to say. You're free from that. Yep, that is true. And that also means we're even more dependent on supporters, uh, friends of the college. And we really like to say friends of the college because we see it as a partnership that we're all doing our part to try to make our country and our world better. Mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, in particular, what we're so thankful for is the generosity of many across the country has made it so that even as expensive as college is across the country, uh, we're really able to give opportunities to students to come to a, a, a college of the, of the pedigree that I think we've become that might not be able to afford it otherwise and to really make it so that those with the best merit 
really can come and get the education here and then go out as many of them already are as alum and try to, to further, uh, again, make their neighborhoods, their, their states, their countries, their communities better places. You know, before I got into media, I was in the financial services industry. And we'd always do planning for people's lives, financial planning. And one of the plans that grandfather, grandparents always had for their grandchildren was to provide for their grandchildren's education. And I always thought that that was a very good thing and a very blessed thing that they would accumulate uh, capital, you know, for purposes of funding their education. As I've gotten older, and I realize many of the universities in America that take funding from the federal government have found themselves uh, delivering a woke agenda, uh, an agenda that is, uh, in my my personal reflection, crazy. Uh, it's uh, it's anti-God, it's um, anti-biblical, and it uh, provokes much fear, but it also is not based upon the truth. And so I wouldn't, early in my life, I'd want my kids to go to Ivy League schools. But today, I wouldn't want them to go to an Ivy League school. I wouldn't want them to go to most of the universities in America. And I, in fact, as a grandfather, I wouldn't pay for it if they went to those colleges and universities. But I would absolutely pay for them to go to Hillsdale College. So I'll give you the testament of what that value it is to be personally. And I have 15 grandchildren, so maybe I'll make a little dent. <laughs> uh, I, I would love to have some of them in class going forward. Uh, we, we are very blessed in the students. I'll have actually say, I was saying this to a prospective student and his father that I was meeting with this morning. The students are some of the best part of this place because they really do give us so much hope that as bad as the news sometimes seems out there, there are really fine young men and women who love God, love their country, love their communities, and genuinely are wanting to make their lives about furthering all of those things and, and doing so hopefully that we're equipping them to be able to do that in the best way possible. So um, again, that is, that, is, that is deeply appreciated. And, and, and you're right, we do have a kind of independence by not having government money. Mm -hmm. And we really cherish that. And we really believe that that allows us to teach in a good way and not in a way that's merely responding to, as you said, some of the woke and other thing ideologies we're very much about teaching young men and women self-government, mm -hmm. meaning they don't only get where, what we think is the true, the good, and the beautiful, although we try to show them the, 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 those truths, uh, whether it be from Aristotle, the Bible, Shakespeare, but also to encourage them that, um, you know, to think for themselves so that they can be not just mimicking what we say, but also discern what is good and just and true. And uh, again, it's an investment. And as you said, many, uh, many of past generations are investing and they're choosing to invest with us, which we really think is bearing fruit that's for the good of, of the country and the world. You know, I had a Jesuit education myself and the Jesuits are known as very good educators. And one of their principles, which I think sadly they violated, was the uh, principle that you don't teach a student um, what to think. You teach the student how to think. And uh, like I said, I think they violated that in the recent years, but and the origins of it, it makes 
for true good education is the teaching, the process of how to think. And therefore, logic becomes a very good, very important part of what that curriculum may be. That being said, I am personally curious, as you bring this up, what type of student is attracted to going to Hillsdale these days? You're 18 <laughs> years old. You graduate from college, uh, high school. What, what draws a student? What is the psychographic profile of, of a student that wants to go there? Can you share that with an audience? Absolutely. And our, the way we pitch to students and parents and grandparents is a bit different than I've seen at many other schools. Other schools may pitch that they have great facilities and we, our facilities are fine or great food. Our, our cafeteria is, you know, fine, not, 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 uh, you know, but not the greatest in the world either. It's, it's perfectly adequate or other sort of trappings, uh, sports teams, things like that. And we don't, uh, uh, and so we, we pitch to them sort of two related things. Uh, one, I know our president will often say to students, to prospective students, oh, you don't want to come here. Uh, you don't want to come here at all, which you think might be crazy to do in recruiting. Cause he's, but then he goes on to say, because it's hard, you'll work harder than you've ever thought you would. You'll get lower grades than you ever thought you you could, mm -hmm. and you'll spend sleepless nights, et cetera, et cetera. And um, he says, but then he then he stops and he says, but if you do come, if you do come, you your life will be changed, uh, and it'll be changed because what you will learn is not, as I was saying earlier, merely about getting a job or a career you will learn something about what it means to be human in the best of ways. You will learn what it means to be in a community and have friends in the deepest and most thoughtful of ways. And you will learn better how to be a, a human being and a citizen. And it will be all for the better. And what that does is that attracts a student who is hardworking, who wants to be challenged, but who also has a view of education that isn't about checking a box getting something on the resume, getting merely a job, although our students do well mm -hmm. with jobs. It's really this idea of we're going to cultivate, I want to learn the great things uh, the, uh, of God's creation and of the world and of our country. And this is the place where I think you can do it better maybe than anywhere else. You know, growing up, uh, I was on the other side of that. And I went to... Uh an all-boys Catholic school in Long Island called Chaminade, and I got a scholarship to go to Georgetown University. My purposes was to get out, get into the business world, and make, become a multimillionaire. That, that was my desire in my heart. And that was my orientation. Uh, I did not hold in high regard teachers because they were lowly paid in my mind. That's when I was younger. <laughs> the older I become, the more value teachers came in my life, uh, you know, I kind of realized the value of teachers is so much greater than anything that I had previously ever thought. And it fits into my understanding of the heart of God the Father. In the heart of God the Father, when he wants to build his heart into men so that men grow up to be fathers, they want to protect, they want to provide, and they want to mentor the next generation. And this, that mentoring comes the teaching aspect because we owe it to the next generation to teach them. And we owe it to the next generation to teach, my, to teach my children, to teach my grandchildren, 
and then in the community to teach the children and the grandchildren in that community what it's like about being human, as you said, what about life. We need to cut back in a minute, in a few minutes, or actually a minute. But do you have one more thought that you can share with us quickly? No, I, I would say that I agree, uh, and and that we really uh, that really does sum up the mission that we have here. And part of it is a kind of gratitude. We're we're thankful for our teachers. We're thankful for our ancestors. We're thankful for the American founders, and really trying to distill that legacy going forward since uh, self-government really depends upon the virtue and intelligence of every generation. Uh, we're trying to do our part to extend that uh, to our posterity. Being thankful is the predicate to getting the blessing of God in your life. And we'll be back in a moment with Dr. Adam Carrington. We're back with that, Adam Carrington, and uh, we discussed the background of the students that attend Hillsdale College and its mission statement and uh, the type of things that they are teaching the students to get more involved with understanding uh, it's a liberal arts college and, and their own humanness and uh, becoming really better human beings with a greater understanding of that and also helping them. I didn't actually mention this, but the thought crossed my mind. Human beings need to relate to one another. And when you have a better understanding of what it's being, being like to be human, it's easier for you to relate to other people uh, in your family, in your community, and, and, and value uh, human relationships. Um, human relationships, in order to be have those relationships, you have to have love being exchanged between people. Uh, you can't have good human relationships when fear is present. Fear separates. Fear disconnects. Love connects. And love is, is a primary principle. And you can't have true love uh, going exchange between people if that relationship is not based upon truth. So we're going to discuss an element here in the political system that has been part of our system by our founding fathers and our leaders in our country that uh, was put into the system, the election process, to preserve our freedom in the election process. And it's called the secret ballot. It's a uh, principle that's not directly in the Constitution. Actually, uh, Dr. Carrington's going to reveal to us the history of it, which is one of the reasons I want him on the program. But the purpose behind it is to overcome fear because it's always in the heart of God the Father that we overcome fear. He says it multiple times in Scripture. Fear not, fear not. Fear not. And yet evil is the antithesis of that. Evil wants us to be afraid. Evil wants us to stop relating. Evil wants us to stop doing things, like voting, for example. It's just one aspect of thousands of aspects. Of, uh, but it's an important principle in 2024, because 2024 is an election year, and we need to understand what the truth is about what's behind uh, the voting process and the history behind the secret ballot, and why it exists, so that we can uh, overcome tyranny that is trying to take our free earth, freedom away from us in this particular year. With that in mind, uh, Adam, could you share with our audience the background of your understanding of how the secret ballot came into play? 
Yes. And I think a thing to begin with with the Constitution is that it leaves a lot of decision making to the states on how to conduct their elections. There's certainly election dates for federal elections. There's baseline rules that Congress put in place. But most of the decision making is 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 still ultimately made state to state. And early on, there was a pretty wide divergence on how people voted. Voting often came, especially in more rural areas, but even urban, as a sort of festival. They would have a big festival, a big party. You'd have music and parades for different candidates and food and, and drink. And I should note, not always temperance approved kind of drinks <laughs> in certain places. Uh, people would still be debating and arguing right up until when they voted, right? Um, and even early on, you had even uh, voice voting in some communities. Uh, you had uh, ballots that were being cast in sort of open containers that people could see. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, not how we, how we understand voting right now. Uh, and in fact, uh, the government at first didn't provide ballots. Mm. Uh, people would bring their own, you know, like tear off a piece of newspaper, write down who you're voting for. Uh, parties would provide ballots, but they would be ballots that didn't even list the names of the opposing candidates and you could just drop it in. Mm. So, uh, uh, you know, that that system uh, is obviously very different. And And if you don't mind, I might just say a little bit of why that system was the case early on, since it's very different from what we understand now. I'm very interested, uh, actually. Yeah, and, and I will get to why I think ultimately the way we do it now protects some of the intentions of the founding even better than those early procedures. Sometimes mm. even principles of the founding take some time to get worked out sure. uh, in practice. But the idea there was... Uh, uh, if you did a secret vote, some people would accuse you of being ashamed of your vote, that you were doing it just for narrow self-interest, um, that you were not being engaged for the good of the community, and that if you were engaged for the good of the community and how you're voting, you would do it outwardly and, and openly. Um, it also was the idea that uh, by voting a little more publicly, there was a sense of belonging. Uh, we're a community doing this together. Mm. Uh, there was an energy to voting. You know, voting right now is a very kind of solemn thing, and it's a very private and almost like you know, um, you know, dropping something off at the post office. It was a it was a party at that point, uh, and uh, and in a day when there was a lot of illiteracy, it was also a way that people could vote who couldn't read. And, and I know there's some struggles with, you know, making that work even today, even though literacy is, is much higher. Um, at the same time, though, uh, that, that you can guess the problems that early on set in with this. Uh, because the voting wasn't nearly as secret, um, there could be intimidation, uh, threats from employers, threats from neighbors, threats from landlords about vote the way I want or else. Uh, there could be fraud. It was much easier to especially buy votes and to check on whether the people you bought, uh, you know, paid money to were, were voting the way you wanted. Um, and even violence. There could be riots and, and, and other things at the voting booth. And, I, I, you know, I don't think I have to tell uh, you or the listeners, none of those are in line with what the founders intended. 
and all of those were undermining the idea that we are all equal, that we have equal votes, that we that that equality and that equality of voting was due respect as uh, not just people made in the image of God, but as fellow citizens as well. And that there was a, should be a, a respected finality to everyone's vote, even if that vote was different than someone else's. And so that, and, and, and uh, I don't wanna go on too long, but you know, down, it was a little further down the line that realizing that that way of voting wasn't accomplishing the purposes of the constitution that the secret ballot finally came in. Uh, and came in, interestingly, from another country. The first country to actually do a secret ballot in the English-speaking world was Australia. And mm -hmm. so when it got introduced to America in the 19th century, they actually called it the Australian ballot. Really? And, That's interesting. Uh, and uh, originally, and then the, na the name dropped. Sure. So uh, that was uh, when they sort of realized, given some of the other histories, and we could get even more into that, um, that this was necessary to truly protect equality under the law in the way that the founders had intended. What year did that happen? Uh, a little later than you would think. The first state to do it was Massachusetts in 1888. Hmm. Uh, and I think a thing to keep in the background here is Reconstruction. Yes. During Reconstruction, especially in, in, in the American South, the newly freed slaves had been given the vote for the first time. Hmm. And you had... Um, massive amounts unfortunately and tragically of voter suppression uh violence at the polls and the 1876 election was a complete mess because it wasn't clear how much voter fraud and intimidation there had been it was a matter of how much had that changed the result in states like south carolina and louisiana that made the difference in the election so i think it really took the aftermath of that for states to fully and finally say, hey, this isn't accomplishing what the founders intended in the Constitution. We need to really start to protect people in the process of voting in a more systematic way. So that's ultimately when it came in. And within four to six years, it was standard that the, the secret ballot uh, was, the, was the way that elections were going to be conducted from then on out. You know, I saw a movie called The Free State of Jones, and uh, it was a very interesting movie, some of that background, because it was post-Civil War, <clears throat> and how the suppression of the vote uh, for blacks not being able to vote after the Civil War was something that was very, uh, um, you know, confrontive, I guess you'd call it the word, um, but they overcame that. What you bring up to me is that we've had issues with election integrity throughout our history. I think back at Tammany Hall and buying of votes was part of our history. A sadly part of our history in some ways because it was, again, it was evil seems to gravitate towards power and control. And the voting system, if you can control the voting system one way or the other, will cause people to be afraid in one way. You can force them to vote the way you want to or not allow them to vote if you don't want their, if you think you, you know how they're going to vote. You don't want to allow them to oh, you suppress the vote. You're only going to suppress the vote of those people who you feel are against you if you're in a position of power. And, uh, you know, down through our history, it's shocking to me. I shouldn't say shocking, maybe surprising that we've had election integrity being an issue. Right, and that just didn't happen in the 2020 election. It's been, it's been 
200 years. And uh, the way our system evolved got stronger and stronger in some ways, but then there were a lot of loopholes or a lot of of problems with it, mail-in ballots and other things like that, that uh, caused other opportunities for fraud, opportunities for the election integrity not to be, not to have integrity. Yes, and I would say it, it, while certainly 2020 was a very strange election, and thankfully because of passing of the reaction to COVID, that's, uh, it's almost unrepeatable. It's, it's really hard to repeat that circumstance. And maybe we can get more into this next time with the next segment, but there is the question, uh, the, 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 as much as things seem to have gotten worse in some things in the history of the country, on elections, the transparency, the safeguards and the protections are worlds ahead of what they were 50 to 100 years ago. And the ability to have fraud in elections is much, much harder than it has really been at any point in our country's history. Far from perfect, but much, much more so. And I think, again, we can maybe get back to this, how that might, you know, why do we have voting in the first place might be something we could also discuss along those lines. Yeah, we'll get back to that. Well, that's, that's good to hear that there have been a lot of good things people brought in to our election process, even though there are some negative things against that happened in 2020. So we'll be back in a moment to talk about the good things that are involved in our election process. 